Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about challenges and goal setting. I've been thinking about the difference between dedicated determination and blind ambition. I've been thinking about healthy competition, cooperation, and the love of sport. And I've been thinking about destructive, addictive commitment and how we can learn to live meaningful lives in the face of victory and defeat. My guest today is Karen Krause, award-winning sports writer, swimmer, successful advocate for gender equity, New York Times journalist, and recent author of her first fabulous book, Norwich, One Tiny Vermont Town's Secret to Happiness and Excellence. Welcome, Karen, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Ellie, that was such a lovely introduction. I can exist all day on that introduction, (laughs) and you really summed up the book perfectly. So I want to start with um, Michael Phelps, 28-time Olympic medalist, um, who shared his perspective on your book. And and he says, the tremendous focus and sacrifice it takes to become an Olympian often leads to imbalance in life. The village of Norwich has shown that a strong community can foster love of sport and competitive success without sacrificing balance. And I'm wondering what kind of balance do you think Michael's referring to? Really, the balance between your development and growth as a performer and your development and growth as a person. And Michael is the first to acknowledge that his growth and development as a person was overlooked because at some point it became all about the performance. So whatever it took to create and maintain this high level of performance, that's that was what was paramount. And at times it worked at odds with his development as a person. Um, A case in point, when um, he was really struggling with anger issues that were related to his parents' divorce when he was nine. And to some extent, the swimming was um, alleviated that. It gave him a safe place, a healthy place to get out that anger and frustration. He could take that out literally on the water. Um, But after a certain point, when you are not dealing with that issue, you're sort of just trying to displace it into something else. However much success he was having in the water, he wasn't dealing with this core issue of his anger and um, depression at what was going on, the breakup of his nuclear family. And eventually it starts, he started acting out in ways out of the pool that you could not ignore the drinking that led to two DUIs, um, things like that. So it, a lot of kids I have found it's almost, I'm speaking in generalities, but it almost appears to be the rule rather than the exception. They sports serve some therapeutic benefit for them. You know, they, they get into it, they find they're good at it, but they stick with it because it gives them some outlet that they really need. That's beyond just the 
physical fitness part of it. There's some emotional outlet that it serves them well in. But the problem with that is it's not fixing the core problem that it's not fixing the core emotional issues that need to be addressed. And I will never forget talking to Michael Phelps's coach, Bob Bowman, about this after um, his first DUI. And he said, you know, the problem is Michael is almost too big to fail. He's become this machine and we have to keep the machine going. And think about that for a second, that you're referring to what was at the time, you know, a kid in his early 20s dealing with all of the regular, normal, emotional and developmental issues that kids at that age are trying to process. And you're referring to the the person as a machine that just needs to keep going forward without any... um, attention paid to the feelings underlying, you know. And we're talking about an athlete at this point that's not even a professional. And so later in the interview, I definitely want to talk about that, the distinction between the professionals. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about when I was a kid, we used to sort of jeer at the Russian athletes because we thought, oh, you know, they're being raised as athletes. They're being groomed as Olympians. And I'm wondering if you see that happening in the majority of the country now in America, other than in Norwich, um, where they really are creating an athlete. Yes, I absolutely see that happening. And I refer to it as the professionalization of youth sports. And it is especially poignant from the Olympic piece of it. Until the late 1990s, there was an amateur model for the Olympics, which meant that in order to monetize your Olympic experience, you would have to star in the Olympics, then retire, and then you would monetize your success. So let's take Mark Spitz. He won seven gold medals in swimming at the 1972 Olympics, retired, and then became a spokesperson for Gillette and various corporate um, entities. In the 1990s, that model changed dramatically, and they decided that the Olympics would be open to professional athletes. So now the model is you um, can monetize your, um, your sport even as you are growing, developing, and excelling in it. And so what it has created the trickle-down effect, if you will, is that parents look at these sports as, oh, my child can grow up to be a professional swimmer, a professional gymnast, a professional rower, um, whatever that the sport is. And all of the sudden, it's gone from an intrinsic-valued endeavor to an extrinsic valued endeavor. There is a carrot being dangled in front of the kid at a very young age that is all external, the external reward of an Olympic birth or a national team birth or a college scholarship or a pro career. When I was swimming in the 1970s, I was the first wave of Title IX athletes. So 
when I started swimming at nine, there was not even the carrot of a college career for me to look forward to. So I count myself extraordinarily lucky that I was able to start swimming for all the right reasons. I simply enjoyed the sport. I enjoyed the connection with the water. Um, I was pretty good at it from the start. So it really fed my self-esteem and all of the things that are really important about sports that have nothing to do with the end result. But now what I, why I was so happy to stumble on the town of Norwich is when I talk to parents, again, since this, um, in the last 20 years for sure, I hear them talking about, well, my Johnny is going to be an Olympic champion just like Michael or my Jane is the next Katie Ledecky. Um, and I keep thinking, what happens if these children grow up to be like me, someone who never made an Olympic team, never made a national team, never turned pro in my sport? Are they going to look at their children as failures? Are they going to look at their childhoods as wasted? And Ellie, that saddened me so much because the older I get, the more I appreciate my sports experience and all the ways it molded me into the journalist that I am, the hard worker, the person able to persevere through difficult assignments, the, the delayed gratification, being able to work months and months on something without really getting, you know, um, acclaim or attention or validation for it. Um, I think I'm coachable. That's because of my swimming. I have a circle of friends that I owe directly to my swimming career. These things are so important to me, much more important in the long term than the awards I won or any tangible um, rewards I received from the sport. 20 years from now, very few people will be remembered for their athletic achievements today, but the tools that you have in your toolbox as a result of your sports participation is so valuable. Those tools are so valuable. They'll help you so much in your next, the next chapters of your life. So I feel like this is a piece of sports that has been completely ignored or forgotten in this rush to get the tangible benefits, the, the money-oriented benefits, the college scholarships and the um, Olympic fame and such. And, and even with that, with the commercialization and the monetization, if you think about it, it's, you know, how many athletes, if, if you're in the Olympics, and even if you're a winner, if you're a swimmer, right. and, and it's Michael Phelps, and he won nine, and you only win two, you know, do right. you even get recognized? And do you even get to monetize your victory? And and you mentioned these kids are feeling like, you know, the parents may look at them and think of their, their failures if they don't do, you know, win Olympic gold. I think the kids will feel like they're failures. And even the the kids who are successes, you know, how long does that last then after the Olympics, if their whole sense of, of, um, of identity is wrapped up in in winning gold? Right. And um, the interesting thing is we ran a story in our paper just last week connected to the World Track and Field Championships 
about an American 400-meter hurdle runner who set the world record. And one of her quotes afterward was, you know, I wasn't as excited as I thought I would be. And to me, that's the classic red flag of someone who has been end result oriented, that the eye has been on the prize, if you will. And I believe that at the end of the day, and I know this from my own personal experience, that the most contentment and satisfaction and meaning comes from the process, not the results. Because you can only control the results so much. Um, I can swim a best time, but if three people swim a time faster than me, there's nothing I can do about that. But if I can take pride and contentment in the fact that I did my best and went faster than I had ever gone before, isn't that really what it's all about? Essentially, that is what it's all about, self-improvement and testing your own limits. I see it time and time again. And even in the book, I um, talk about the most successful Norwich Olympian was the mogul skier, Hannah Carney. She won the Olympic gold in 2010 in Vancouver, and then four years later finished third in defense of her title and talked about that as feeling like a failure. She said third place feels like a broken heart. And that's the elite athlete mentality it's not far off from the um, very ill-designed, I thought, Nike ad from the late 1990s that second place is the first loser. Um, if we are defining success only in terms of wins, there are going to be a lot of people feeling lesser than, feeling like failures, because in every endeavor, there is only one winner. And that just seems like... Um, a really narrow definition of success when it's really about the process and the journey. Um, that's where most people find the fulfillment. So what is Norwich doing differently? Are, are their kids exceptional in some way? Um, or is it something that the community is doing to create a different type of athlete? So I found out about this town when I was at the 2014 Olympics and a reader emailed me and said, you really should look into the town of Norwich where the mogul skier Hannah Carney is from. It's put a lot of athletes on Olympic teams. And so I was covering hockey for the times at that Olympics. When I got home, I did some cursory research. And yeah, here's this town of 3,000 people and it's put 11 athletes on Olympic teams um, in the span of 1960, from the span of 1960 to 2014, um, including two summer Olympians. So what is it about this town? And so I went there on an exploratory trip thinking I was going to find some kind of athletic factory. And to my delight, what I found instead was a town that was very much like the Santa Clara of my youth. It's crazy to think about it now because when you think of Santa Clara, you think of Silicon Valley and you really think of a place that holds none of the values that I'm going to describe in Norwich. But in the 1970s, Santa Clara was still very much an agrarian centered place. 
I grew up across from Orchards, um, the place where the San Francisco 49ers play their home games was a plumber pear orchard, I believe. Um, it was very much still a farming oriented place and people were very community oriented. You know, when you're in agriculture, it takes a village to get by. Um, people are willing to help other people. So that was the value system. In Norwich, that's what I found is that I would talk to people in the town and they would be bragging about their neighbor's kids like, oh, you really should talk to my neighbor, Edie, because her son, Brooks, is a great up and coming mogul skier. And I saw a pride of place and that really knew no um egotistical boundaries, you know, oh, well, I don't need to brag about my child because every child of Norwich is seen as a child of the town and worth, you know, rooting for. So that's a piece of it, the community piece of it. Also, that community piece of it is important because these kids are raised to say, okay, yeah, you are really good at this sport, but you are also a member of our community and we value you for that. You are a neighbor and a daughter and a sister and um, these pieces are all important. So they are really raised with a very strong sense that whatever they're good at is what they do, but it isn't who they are. This was extremely important for Hannah who was wired like many of the most competitive athletes I've come across, including Michael Phelps, left to her own devices. If she had not had that piece of it, she really would have been a candidate for the kind of depression and anxiety that you see a lot in high-level athletics these days because she really was someone who had to fight the notion that second place is the first loser. So when you get to the elite level, and I'm talking about Olympic caliber level, it is such a small bubble. We're talking about the creme de la creme, if you will. It's such a narrow vision of success. It's all about chasing the prize, and the prize is first place. It's world championships. It's gold medals. So if that was her only sense of community, yeah, it could be really easy to start thinking like, oh, I'm a failure because I'm not always winning. No one always wins. Even the greatest sportsmen, when we think of the greatest of all time, when we think of Michael Phelps, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, um, these people didn't win all the time. Tiger Woods does not win all the time. Um, so what happened with Hannah is every time she would think like, oh, I'm such a failure because I'm not winning, there were always the people back in Norwich who would pull her out of that mindset. She had a larger community service or social safety net. People who would say to her, Hannah, you are trying your hardest. You're representing our tiny town on the world stage and we're so proud of you and we are proud of the person you are. We're proud of what you do for us in the community 
And so they were always giving her the perspective that is missing at high level, elite level sports. When she came out on her Facebook page after finishing third at the 2014 Olympics and said that third place feels like a broken heart, the people back in Norwich saw this and it galvanized them into action. And they said, you know what? We need to have a parade for Hannah when she comes back. We need to celebrate her when she returns home so that she knows with beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are proud of her and that there is no shame in third place. And so that's what they did. In the span of a week, they pulled together this town-wide celebration where the owner of the general store, whose motto, by the way, is if we don't have it, you don't need it, which is a lovely life mantra I tried to adopt. But he delivered a speech saying, Hannah, we have lived vicariously through your successes. You have spread the values of Norwich all over the world. You have made us proud. Um, and notice that none of this talks about any specific places. You know, never once was it about purely winning. It's about just the journey and the effort. Um, so she always had that that piece of it to give her the perspective that is oftentimes missing in high caliber sports. So then what is it about a community about Norwich that allows it to develop and maintain a different value system than the rest of the culture? And, and, you know, it's a wealthy community, it's well educated. Yeah. Is it something that just exists in space? And then people who share that value system are drawn there? Or or what did you see being there? Well, I think it's, It's definitely, it's an out-of-the-way place. It's an isolated place. It's not easy to get to. It's about an hour and a half from any, you know, major airport. So um, you, to for people to live there, they really want, they have to want to live there. They're seeking out a special kind of existence, one that is very um, rooted in nature and community, Um, Because you're so isolated, you do um, rely on neighbors more than a lot of us. I really want to speak to the affluent piece of it because there were people who said to me, well, of course Norwich is successful. These people are all rich and have access to the most resources. Well, that is by no means um, a guarantee of you know, raising a balanced and well-rounded child. Just in the neck of the woods where I grew up in Palo Alto, there were a few years ago a spate of suicides where you had teenagers who were jumping in front of the light rail trains because they were just so depressed and anxious over the weight of the expectations that they felt to succeed because they did come from affluent families for which there was no resource that was not there at their disposal to succeed. So there was this huge expectation that they had to succeed in the mo- in the narrowest sense of what that means. They needed to go to the finest schools. They needed to get into the Ivy League schools and they needed to then 
you know, do well um, at those schools. And there were just a, there a very few career paths that were seen as the most successful paths. So they really were dealing with so much anxiety. I've seen it time and again in my reporting for the New York Times, where the more affluent the area the more you're going to see kids who are taken out of that community. They're not going to the public schools. They may not even be um, competing for the public clubs. They're being sent to boarding schools far from home. They're getting private coaching. So at every step, they're being isolated from the community in the search for excellence. And what is missing is that community piece of it, of feeling connected, of feeling as if your success is part of a greater, you're one piece of a greater whole, that your success is not just about yourself, but it's also about the community, that you're lifting the community up even as you succeed. The one thing about Norwich that reminded me so much of my childhood in Santa Clara and is a piece of it that is largely missing in elite sports is these Olympians would come back to Norwich and they would help out. They would be teaching their sport to the younger kids. Imagine if your first teacher is an Olympian, is the best ski jumper that America has ever produced, and you're learning the elements of ski jumping from that person it's really empowering and how can you not be enthusiastic what it also teaches these kids is these olympians far from being placed on a pedestal are literally just like the rest of us not only are they not put on a pedestal they're actually serving as servants if you will in the respect that they are giving of their time and experience to help other people. So that's a piece of it that cannot be overstated because it is not calling the herd and making those who excel feel as if they are on a pedestal and making them feel like, oh yeah, I'm a big deal because I am good at this one sport it is very much integrating their success into the community. Like, oh, you're so good at this and you are helping others to become better at it and to become enthusiastic about it. And I related to that because at Santa Clara, which was at the time I was growing up there, the epicenter of swimming, not only in the United States, but in the world, four of my first five coaches were Olympians. So I grew up thinking like Olympians are no big deal. In fact, why can't I grow up to become one? Because all of these people are, and they um, live in the same place I do. They've had the same kind of coaching. So it normalizes what other people see as an extraordinary feat, but it also keeps the athlete grounded because um, in giving back, they're integrated into the community and not feeling like, oh, I'm isolated from it by my success. I swam as a walk-on at USC and I was surrounded there by world record holders and gold medalists. 
And what I found there was that these athletes really were very maladjusted for the most part because their success um, created a situation in which they were seen as different from the rest of us. They were perceived as leading charm lives or they were just perfect. And imagine trying to develop into an adult and deal with all of the issues that adolescents and college deal with, but not having the freedom to say, I need help, or I'm not strong, or I'm vulnerable, because the myth is that you are the strongest of the strong, and you are invulnerable in your sport, and you are perfect in every way. That's why you're successful it just created very little space for these athletes to be human and to show their vulnerabilities. So that's why I think the community-oriented piece is such a part of it, because they are integrated into the community from a young age, and even as they excel in their sport, they are more able to express their humanity and their vulnerabilities and not try to act as if, oh yeah, I am perfect because they're not seen as perfect. They're seen as the kid next door in all of their, you know, humanity. One critical distinction that you point out in the book is that the sport enriched their lives and that's what drove them. And I'm I'm thinking about why does the why of motivation matter? And and something that we don't pay attention to so much in our society is, is the why. Um, Why are we wanting our kids to to do the sport? Why are the kids wanting to do the sport? Why do you think that that is an important factor to consider? Oh, Ellie, that's such a great question because what I have found is most kids, um, they gravitate toward activities because for whatever reason, it's fun for them, their friends are doing it, that makes it enjoyable, and then they maybe start to become proficient in it and that feeds their self-esteem. But then what happens is a lot of parents, however well-meaning, get involved and, oh, you're so good in it. And this is what you can, this is what can happen for you if you continue to improve like this. And they tend to become very result oriented. A lot of times that can take away from the child's enjoyment of the sport because what the child, what drew the child to the sport in the beginning were all of these intrinsic qualities, the feeling of the social aspect, the feeling of developing a proficiency in something, the independence that um, a sport gives you and that you're developing your own identity separate from your parents. Then when all of a sudden the focus shifts to what the parents see as important, it almost is telling the child, however subtly, that oh, what you are enjoying about it isn't important. This is what is important. Then I cannot tell you how many athletes I have dealt with over the years who are have participated in the sport, some of them quite successfully, to get their parents' um, approval or love. They felt as if somehow their parents' affection is tied up into their results. 
I'll never forget Hannah telling me about a teammate at the 2014 Olympics crying before she called home to her parents because she was so afraid of how they were going to react to the news that she had failed to win a medal. And is that really what parents are setting out to, is that the kind of experience parents want for their child that their child is calling from the biggest sporting event on the planet and that child's sport. And they're afraid to tell the parent what they did because they didn't succeed in the narrowest sense of the word. I just think the the process and the journey when left to their own devices, most kids, that's what they will find the joy in, the process and the journey. It's certainly what kept me coming back to swimming day after day, week after week, year after year, from the ages of 9 to 21, was just the idea that I was pushing my and testing my own limits, that I was experiencing success, and that gave me a sense that I was good at something, that I was proficient at something, I developed a sense of independence because I was going to meets that took me far afield from my hometown. I was developing friendships. I look forward to going to practice because that's where all my friends were. I love that we were all doing this very hard sport and we were all in it together. It was sort of an all-for-one, one-for-all atmosphere that's what made swimming fun for me, not the trophies and the ribbons that were um, there to be won. So the Norwich kids, by and by, have parents who will check in with them. Are you still enjoying this sport? You know, if you're not enjoying it, you don't need to keep doing it for us. You know, we want you to be enjoying this because um, it's for your own reasons, not because of anything that we are getting out of it. So I think that check-in is important. I remember talking to a work colleague of mine around the time the book came out, and he had a daughter who was a senior in high school. And I asked where she was going to college, and he said, well, she's looking at a couple of places, including um, one or two where she'll be able to continue playing soccer And I said, well, is that something she likes to do or is interested in doing? And he said, well, she's not really sure, but I'm sure hoping that she decides to play soccer in college. And I really paused before I asked this next question because the answer was going to be telling. I said, why do you hope that she continues to play soccer in college? And I was hoping that he would say, well, because it will give her an instant social unit. You know, she'll make instant friends with her teammates and have um, a group of people that that she will feel connected with at the start. Or even if it was, well, she'll be able to sign up for her classes earlier than the student body at large. So at least I'll know she'll be getting the classes she needs toward her degree. Instead, his answer was, I so enjoy watching her play. And I was saddened by that because I thought, you don't think that his daughter isn't painfully aware that her soccer brings her dad joy when really it should be her soccer brings her joy and that makes her dad happy. 
And again, it's all coming from a wonderful place, but it can get perverted a little to the point where the child no longer feels like he or she has ownership of the sport, that he or she is honestly in the passenger seat and somehow the parent has taken over the wheel. I'm thinking about joy and a sense of empowerment too as you speak because you're learning as you were in swimming, you know, action and consequence that that that's yeah. empowering that I can work at something and and I'll improve um or I can set right. a goal and I can reach it that that's so empowering. Um or thing, even Ellie, uh, how about this even kind of the the reality side of it that I can work super hard and not improve or and, that, and maybe I that just like success it. Maybe is I not like automatic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, swimming was such an important lesson in life for me that I have carried forward. I do not assume that if I work really hard on anything, I am guaranteed success or I am entitled to success because I had plenty of years where I worked so hard and I did not improve my times. I had plateaued, but that's that was an important lesson in and of itself that, okay, well, maybe the times can't be my goal. I have to figure out other goals, mini goals that I can succeed at even as I'm failing at the largest um also that um i can do my very best i can do a best time and still not win because there are others who just they did a best time too and they were better i think there's real value in learning that no matter how good you get there's always someone who's going to be a little bit better and that's fine um that's life right so it really, my swimming experience was showing me at every corner um, around every bend that I really have to be focused on myself and my own very personal goals and self-improvement and all these intrinsic rewards because I can't count on the extrinsic rewards always being um, fulfilled. It, it's interesting because I'm teaching a journalism class at Arizona State this semester, and I have in my class a young man who wants to be part of ASU. They have this wonderful program where they're going to send a group of students to the Tokyo Olympics. And so he wants to be a part of this group. So he keeps asking me, well, what do I need to do to get um, notice so that I can be selected to this um, group to go to Tokyo. Meanwhile, he's falling behind on my work assignments, my classroom assignments, because his eye is on the prize that is this um, appointment to the Olympics. And I finally told him, you have to be process-oriented. If you do a really good job on the assignments in this class and your other classes, your professors are more likely to champion your appointment to this elite group that will travel to Tokyo. But if your eye is on the end result, um, what happens if you don't get it? 
you have to be enjoying the process along the way or all of this is a waste of your time. And I see in him what I see in a lot of athletes that I am um, around these days are people who are not necessarily about the process, but they just want the rewards. I call it the reality TV, um, you know, permeation into all aspects of our culture where you just want to be famous for being famous. The work to get there doesn't appeal to you as much as the fame itself. And I think that's really regrettable and because really the meaning and the contentment and the self-satisfaction comes from the process and the journey. I told this young man, I don't win very many prizes. So if I had this end result orientation, I would be a miserable journalist. But I so enjoy the process of telling people's stories of gathering information about someone and then putting the pieces together into a jigsaw puzzle that um, all fits at the end of the day. I really enjoy that. I still derive as much satisfaction from that as I did when I was starting out my career, which I'm not convinced everybody can say my sense of um, just being out and about in the world is there are a lot of people just simply going through the motions by the time they um, have the amount of experience I do. And on top of that, you are more likely to win the award than someone who doesn't have that experience um, because right. you're not doing it to win the award. Right. It's sort of the idea of, you know, if you're not looking for something, you can find it. And people ask me all the time, well, how do you get to the New York Times? Well, my simple answer is by not trying to get to the New York Times. When I began my career, I was not even a regular reader of the New York Times. I grew up with parents who were not well educated. The New York Times was never in our home. So I grew up just trying to be the best writer I could be, and I wanted to tell people stories. It really mattered less to me where I got to do it than the fact that I had the chance to do it. So I just kept working hard at every job I had to do the best job I could and to tell stories in the best way I could and use that work ethic that I developed through swimming and Ten jobs later, um, I got to the New York Times. You know, the sports editor of the New York Times called me out of the blue one day and asked me, do you want to interview for a job at our in our section? Um, so by just trying to do good work, I got to this place that many people covet, you know, but it was not my end goal. And I think that was helpful in my journey. You draw parallels between the keys to the farming success in the Norwich area to raising successful athletes. Um, what does that look like? And why does that work? Well, I think what's happened as the money has become um, a bigger uh carrot dangled in front of kids is that sports has become a zero-sum game. For my child to succeed, yours has to fail. 
So it's all about like my child has to win everything and that makes him or her a success. So there's not a lot of generosity of spirit where, oh, I want my child to do well, but I want your child to do well too. Um, I believe that in life as in sports, the pie is big enough for everyone to enjoy a piece of it, that you don't have to have one person hoarding the pie. Um, that's not my definition of success. And it was embodied beautifully by the ski jumpers in Norwich. So Norwich produced the two best ski jumpers that our country has ever had, um, Jeff Hastings and Mike Holland. So this is how it starts. Jeff Hastings is the first to do this crazy sport. He outgrows his jumping skis. He knocks on the door of his neighbor, Mike Holland. And when Mike answers, he says, here, I've outgrown these skis. I think you should try them. Well, Mike had a healthy fear of jumping. He did not really think that was the neatest Sport. That did not look like something he absolutely had to try. He was more into cross-country skiing at the time. He was 10 years old then. But he really looked up to Jeff Hastings. So he thought, well, if Jeff thinks that I can do this and wants to give me the skis, I'll try it. So he, he goes to the hill, the local hill. It takes him 15 minutes to screw up the courage to make his first jump. He's terrified. He gets to the bottom and goes, oh, my gosh, that was so scary. I love it. So he keeps doing it. He gets his brothers into it. All of a sudden, you have this group of ski jumpers who are very competitive with one another, but they're also helping one another even as they all improve. So if Jeff saw that Mike's technique was off, he would say something like, oh, I think you can do this, you're a little too upright, etc. So they were all competitive, but not to the point where I'm not going to tell you what you're doing wrong because I don't want you to get better than me. They welcome the competition, realizing that if he gets better, that's going to make me better too. And that was another piece of it that I understood explicitly or implicitly from growing up in Santa Clara. When you are around a bunch of medalists, Olympic medalists, you just get better because you are trying to keep up with them. You are trying to um, get to the level that they are at. And it just creates, what is it, that the rising tide lifts all boats. It's that aspect of it. But when I tell you that ski jumping story, there are a couple pieces of it. Look at the generosity of giving your skis to a kid, but you, you know, giving skis that you've outgrown to another kid so that they have the equipment to try the sport. And then being really generous in feedback and helping other people get better, even as you are trying to compete against and beat them. So it created just this really healthy environment competitive environment where of course they all wanted to beat each other this is not a town that values participatory ribbons but at the same time they see that there is more to a sport than the ribbons 
that it's about the community that you foster, the camaraderie that you foster, the self-improvement, the, um, there can be joy in helping someone else get better. Um, one, another aspect of this that I just love this part of Hannah's story. So in 2010, when Hannah won the gold medal, the owner of the general store was so happy that she had realized her biggest dream that he had bumper stickers made up and sold them for a dollar. And so he, he made a couple hundred dollars profit off the sale of these bumper stickers. So when she returned from the Olympics, she had no idea he had even um, made these bumper stickers, much less sold them. But he presents her with this check. Again, just a piece of it. He doesn't keep the profits for himself. He gives her the check representing the profits and says, Hannah, you earn this, not me. This is the money I made off of selling these bumper stickers, heralding your achievement. I want you to have it. Do you know what Hannah did? She did not go out and buy herself a new outfit or buy herself the latest piece of technology or treat herself to a fabulous dinner. She took that check and she walked it down to the local library, the Norwich Library. She found the children's librarian and she presented her with the check and she said, would you use this money to buy sports books that you think teenage girls would enjoy? So again, it starts with the owner of the store who, because this is the value system of the town, to pay it forward whenever possible, he gives Hannah the money rather than keeping the profits for himself. Hannah doesn't need any prodding for her from her mother or any other adult to know like, okay, I want to take this money and do something good for the next generation, for someone else. So she takes the money and pays it forward in the form of these athletic books that will perhaps inspire younger women to get involved in sports. This is the ethos of the community, and it's part of the fabric of, of the community, and it's just built one family at a time, you know, that this is the value system, and it is just sort of ingrained in the um, kids from a very young age. And I think an important element of that is it's sustainable because it's effective, that the right. cooperation and the collaboration produces positive relationships that enhance performance yes. and physical and emotional well-being, right? So it it has right. a result. It's not just, oh, be good because and it's the, nice to be good. Right. And And the result, it's doubly that. So the result is not just that it's nice to be good. And it's also not that it's nice to be accomplished in what you do, what your passion is. So it's sort of this double-edged benefit where it's nice to be accomplished, but it's even better to be good. I I think there's that um, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice or something. There's a, a saying to that effect. And they just absorb this as part of the community ethos. It's just a value system that is is decidedly different than this 
life as a zero-sum game. Um, you you um, talk about an athlete, a super talented miler, Andrew, and he talks about the challenge openly of finding, uh, once he becomes professional, of how to find yeah. a collaborative motivation once you're being paid. And that not only right. that, not only is he he's just digging to try to find some raison d'etre to keep running, but that right. the expectation that now you can't do anything great um, and have it be meaningful because that's now what's expected of you. Right, right. And, and, and he, he and lost very, it, lost way. Oriented. Yeah, I'm so happy that you brought up Andrew Weeding as, um, because his situation is very topical and timely. He was a runner um, who came to running very late. He did not run his first competitive race until his junior year in high school. And yet after his second year of college, he made his first Olympic team. So this idea that you need to start young, specialize early and do 10,000 hours of practice, he belies that. He is the proof that is not the one and only path to athletic greatness. It turned out that the sports he did before he discovered running were helping him become a better runner. And that is a big part of the Norwich way is they do not specialize early. All of their athletes with their Olympic athletes, with the exception of the first was a multi-sport athlete through high school. But in any event, so Andrew comes to running late, makes an Olympic team. He goes to the University of Oregon, which reminded him in all the best ways of Norwich because it was a small town where everybody got behind the runners because of its rich history and track and field. And so he spoke very poignantly about how he loved running in college because he saw himself as a 10-point person, that my success in running in college lifted the whole team, that I could inspire my teammates to do better in their events by the result that I achieved. And I, in turn, could be inspired to run faster because of something that I saw my teammates do or wanting to help my team do better. He said, then I get out of college, I turn pro, and all of a sudden, I'm a one-point athlete where I don't care how the team does. I only care about how I do. As long as I get my one point, I don't care about anybody else. Well, that's very much the model for professional sports is that it's all about taking care of number one. He really had a hard time finding motivation and all of a sudden, it wasn't about the journey. It wasn't about the process. It wasn't about the community that he was a part of. It was about the end result. And if he did not produce on the track, his earnings suffered. He struggled so mightily with this that at one point, he became a big brother um, and got someone who he spent time with because he was searching for that community piece. Well, at least when I'm not training and thinking only of me, 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 I can be doing this where I am other directed. He said it was so hard to train with people who not only weren't going to tell you 
what you were doing wrong when you were struggling in a workout, but that you could actually feel them in some way reveling in your struggle because you were their main competition. And there was this idea that they were gaining confidence in seeing you struggle. Like, well, he's my competition. And if he's struggling, that looks good for me. So very much the antithesis of the Norwich environment, but very much typical of the narrow elite athlete bubble. Um, So um, validation for the Norwich way and its importance and why the Norwich story needs to be told. So in the end of our talk, I want to circle back to Santa Clara because the Santa Clara you Mm -hmm. describe of 50 years ago has a lot of similarities to Norwich. And it's become a place, along with Palo Alto and the rest of the country pretty much, that values have focused on external achievement and commercialism and the disruption of the status quo, that the culture is all about disrupting rather than um, any focus towards sustainability. And we're reaching not only with our athletes, but in general with a population, a tipping point as far as depression and burnout and anxiety. Um, You said that writing this book was yoga for your soul. And reading this book, I will uh, will attest to, is yoga for the soul. Um, Thank you. How do you see the Norwich way? We definitely need T-shirts. It's a beginning. But how do you see the Norwich way um, filtering down into the rest of society? Well, it was funny when the college admissions scandal broke, when I first heard about these parents who were having other people take their child's SATs for them so that they could get into better universities or, you know, better in quotes, um, or paying off um, people so that their child could um, tangentially be seen as an athlete or what have you. I just happened to have a book event that night and I um, made the room laugh by saying, you know, my first thought when I heard about the college admissions scandal is that is how can I get my book into the hands of these misguided parents? And, and I just don't think we're as a society there yet. We still are, um, Greed is good. We have that ethos and whether people are willing to own that or not, everything points to the idea that more is better and greed is good. The the person who has the most stuff at the end of the day is the winner. The person who has the most money, who has the most prestige, who has the most status, who has the biggest house, who, you know, this is what are, these are things that are valued. Whereas in Norwich, it's not about that. It's like, what do you do to give back? That's how you gain status in that community. How good of a person are you? What do you do to pay it forward? How do you help? What kind of neighbor are you? Um, and so I think we just have to shift our value system from a greed-oriented system to a value system in which it is more um, spiritual, where it's like, okay, I'm blessed with a lot. What can I do to give back? And I'm not talking about just material riches. 
what I learned in Norwich is Hannah talked about even when she was a member of these rec teams and sports like soccer and softball, she was very athletic. And so she was better than most of the other girls on these teams. But she was encouraged like, hey, can you help so-and-so who's really having trouble with, you know, learning this skill? So she was learning at a very young age that because you're better, that that actually gives you a responsibility to see if you can help someone else who's not as good. Don't just revel in the fact that you're better than everyone. Help other people to be, to improve. And she said this was so valuable for her in keeping her grounded because it also made her realize like, oh, I can't take my gifts for granted. I can't just think this is all about me. I have to realize that these gifts were granted to me to some extent. Why am I naturally better than these people who are my same age, who, um, you know, in other ways I'm very much alike. So it made her appreciate her own gifts. And also she would see, wow, I can't be complacent about these gifts because that person who is not as good as me is trying 10 times as hard as I am. So what develops there? Empathy. And that's the one thing when I take trips back to the Bay Area, what I feel is lacking more than anything is empathy. Um, This idea that greed is good and the person with the most toys wins. There's a lack of like understanding that you didn't get there on your own. So um, why not give back? You know, um, I'm not talking in any kind of political sense. I'm not, you know, I'm not an advocate of socialism. I'm an advocate of humanism and realizing that, you know, we're sort of all in this together. Um, So many of the things that have become talking points on the political scene are, are subjects that one person or one country can't fix alone. It's going to take everybody working together. And for me, that was one of the greatest lessons learned in sports is how you can be better together. You know, um, the ski jumpers in Norwich were better for having worked out alongside one another every day, day after day, week after week, year after year. Uh, I just am so strident in my belief that the, the faster that we can get away from just seeing that everything is a zero-sum game, the better off for, you know, everybody. We're all in this together, and the hill looks a heck of a lot less steep when you're standing by a friend. So that's good for everybody every day. studies that have actually literally proven that, that a a hill will look less steep when you are climbing it with a friend. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Um, Wonderful book, wonderful work. Thank you. Um, A real addition to humanity. So thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.